0: I guess that's my cue. <laughs> I was getting ready to come up. Good morning. Uh, my name is Zach, and I'm the associate minister here at Prairie View. Um, let me get my things squared away here. We've been making our way through the Gospel of Luke since the beginning of the year. This is the thirteenth sermon. I think if I. I Pretty sure I counted right. Maybe you're keeping, Joshua's keeping count, naturally. And uh, he's giving me the thumbs up. This is the 13th sermon. We'll have two more that will see us through Easter, which means this is one of the longer sermon series that we do as a church. They don't get much longer than 13, 14, 15 weeks. So this, this morning, we're again looking at the Gospel of Luke, and we are going to be looking particularly at Luke 18:9 through 14, which, if you're paying attention to your emails and the bulletins, as Joshua mentioned, none of that should be news to you. But let's go ahead and turn to Luke eighteen nine through 14 right now. And we're going to go ahead and read that. It says, he, that's Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now we're going to look at this passage from two angles this morning. The first is to simply understand the parable on its face. What is happening in these six verses? And the second is to understand how this passage fits into the broader scope of Luke's gospel. But before we move forward, let's pray and ask God to help us make sense of his word and to bring it to bear in our lives. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, for um, the opportunity and privilege to gather together and uh, sit under the authority of your word to hear what you have to say to us and um, to receive it both as a gift, um, as, a, as a spur, to spur us on to action, as a call to repentance, as an as a encouragement, all these things, God, that you are doing through your word. Um, Thank you that your word isn't just for sermons, it's for singing, it's for praying, it's for communion, it's for conversations with a cup of coffee in the lobby. Um, So thank you for all of these ways that you speak to us and and all the things you do for us. Thank you for this church, and again, the privilege to gather here together, um, wherever we might be coming from, the highs and lows, uh, those who are unable to be here this morning uh, for for various reasons. Father, I just uh, pray that we would hear your word know more about you, come to know more of your love for us, grow in our love for you and our love for one another as a result of what we hear. I pray that um, you would just help us to pay attention and to hear what you have for us and that uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, um, these things would come to bear as we see and hear uh, who you are and, and, and again, what you, what you require of us. Um, Thank you, Father, once again, uh, for all that you do, for making these things possible. Thank you for your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. So last week, we heard from Pastor Ben as he preached on the parable of the persistent widow from Luke 18, 1 through 8. So if you have your Bible open, it's right there, unless it's a page back, but then it's still right there. That parable is introduced in a similar fashion to the one we just read this morning. In both, Luke tells us what Jesus' parable is about. Last week, it was to pray and not lose heart. And this week, it is to address the self-righteous. Unlike several of Jesus' other parables and many of his teachings, the lesson here is clear. And I trust that you will see it without me putting it in front of you, but I'm going to put it in front of us. We are not justified By good works, we do not earn our way into God's good graces. We are not acceptable to God because we compare favorably with the riffraff around us. We are not God's children because we thank him in prayer. Our only hope is the mercy of God. And more specifically, our only hope is to be forgiven. This is our first takeaway from the passage this morning. If we will be justified, if we will be made right, if we will be restored, healed, acceptable to God, we must be forgiven. And this is all given to us succinctly in the words of the tax collector. Looking again at verse 13, it says, But the tax collector, standing far off, Would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. This is the man that Jesus declares righteous. And Jesus isn't some nobody. Time and time again, Luke describes the authority with which Jesus operates. If you turn to the beginning of Luke and you look at Luke 4, you find the beginnings of Jesus' earthly ministry. and as it begins, Jesus' power and authority are put on display. He resists the devil in Luke 4:1 through13. He, he says that Old Testament prophecies are being fulfilled in him in Luke 4:16 through21. He casts out demons and heals the sick in Luke 4:31 through41. And, pa- and in those verses, Luke tells us that the crowds clearly understood that Jesus was a man of power and authority. Verse 36. So Luke 4:36 says this. And they were all amazed and said to one another, "What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. The people understood that they were witnessing something special, but they didn 't know its source. they weren 't sure that Jesus could be trusted, but the demons that were rebuked, the demons that were conquered, they had no doubts. If we look at verse 41, so Luke 4:41 says this, and demons also came out of many crying, "You are the Son of God," but he rebuked them. And would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Luke's insight into the minds of the demonic is crystal clear. They knew that he was the Christ. And who is the Christ? Christ, this might be a review for some of us, but Christ is not a name. Jesus' last name was not Christ. Christ is a title. And the Christ is God's king. And what does a king do? A king rules. And part of ruling was right in the name, is determining rules. It's determining right from wrong. A king has the final word on the law of the land. Christ, the king, has the authority to decree who is just and unjust. He has the authority to tell you where you can be or where you can't be the way he did to the demons. But he has the authority to decree right from wrong, just and unjust. This this is illustrated even further in Luke 5. So, yes, we're looking at Luke 18, but first we're looking at Luke 4 and 5. In Luke 5, Jesus heals a paralytic man who had been lowered to him through the roof of a crowded room. But before Jesus heals the man, Jesus tells him, that his sins are forgiven. The people, the crowded room, they wonder what grounds Jesus has for making such a ridiculous comment. To them, it seemed as preposterous and presumptuous as if I were to stand here and say with any expectation of bringing these things about, this would be nice, all of your student loans are forgiven or your mortgage is paid off. The only effect Me saying those kinds of things, if I really thought they were going to do something, all they would really do is make me look like an arrogant fool. But Jesus is no fool. In Luke 5.24, Jesus says that he is acting, that he is going to act in order to demonstrate his authority to forgive sins. And then, and only then, does Jesus heal the man. The implication being the power that enables Jesus to heal this man is also able, also makes him able of forgiving his sins. So in his gospel, Luke is fleshing out the person of Jesus and assumes that we are keeping these things in mind as we make our way to Luke 18. So an essential part of Jesus' character is his authority. In particular, his authority to pronounce guilt, or righteousness. So coming back to Luke 18, we are presented with a hypothetical situation. It is a parable after all. But given the hypothetical, Jesus isn't merely describing what takes place. Jesus, as king and judge, is telling us how he himself would rule in that scenario. Christ the king is explaining how he wields his authority. And because I know that power and authority can be intimidating, because of how often they are abused, if we're just being honest, it's worth pointing out that all this talk about power and authority and this image of Jesus, the very next passage, if you've got your Bible open, is Jesus' words about children and his gentleness towards children. So lest you think he's out swinging a hammer, beating everybody down, the next, very next thing is this gentle, tender Jesus. So Jesus is both lion and lamb. He is meek and powerful. He is gentle and authoritative. So why, why does Jesus, with his authority, Christ the King, why does he pronounce the tax collector justified? Now it's a bit ironic that I'm preaching this passage because several weeks ago I preached a sermon on the mercy of God. And um at that time I stressed that mercy is not the opposite of justice, where justice is getting what we do deserve and mercy is getting mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Right? I'm saying that's not what mercy is. Mercy is not merely withholding punishment. Yes, sometimes mercy works out that way, but God's mercy is fundamentally connected to his kindness and compassion. It's, it, it's the way that God's heart yearns to help the weak, the poor, and the vulnerable. And with his emphasis on the outcast of society, Luke, as an author of this gospel, draws special attention to the mercy of God. And here in Luke 18, we have a tax collector calling out for God's mercy. But mercy, again, the way I understand it, the way I think it's best understood biblically, isn't primarily concerned with guilt. It's concerned with misery. And while this tax collector is certainly miserable as he beats his chest, the tax collector is not in danger from enemies who hate him. He's not poor and hungry He's not sick, he's not blind, he's not paralyzed. He's guilty. Yes, the man needs God's compassion and kindness and help. And in that regard, mercy fits, but what he's really asking for is forgiveness. Now notice, notice that the parable is taking place in the temple. It's easy to overlook details like this as we try to mine the scripture for wisdom and truth to apply in the 21st century. After all, we don't have a temple. And the closest thing we have, in our minds at least, is a church building. And, and frankly, that's a pretty bad comparison for reasons I could talk about at some other time. But if you're anything like me, when you read this story until you've stared at it for several hours like i did but when you first read this story you imagine the pharisee and the tax collector in a building sort of like a church there are other religious people around doing religious kinds of things but that's that's not where they were it's not exactly and while it's not the case that every detail of every parable always points to something bigger and deeper i think this this detail does When the tax collector cries to God for mercy, he's using a technical term. He's using a term that was related with the sacrifices of the temple. He's asking for atonement. Atonement is an important word for Christians. It's spelled at one, and it means to be at one with God. So in ancient Israel, this was carried out within the sacrificial system given to them by God. Leviticus 16 describes the day of atonement. After a fairly comprehensive description of the procedure, God tells Moses that the result of the ritual is that the people will be cleansed from their sins. So we're going to look at Leviticus 16, verse 30, and then also verse 34. They say, for on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. And jumping down to verse 34, and this shall be a statute. This shall be a rule, a commandment forever for you. That atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. Now, so It's important to note that atonement via blood sacrifice is not some transcendent principle by which God is bound. God did not inherit a universe where atonement through sacrifice was a pre-existing condition. The mere existence of atonement, of at-oneness with God, of forgiveness, the mere existence of it is a gracious gift from God. Atonement is not a system whereby we get equal with God. God didn't owe it to the Israelites to forgive their sins because they offered up sacrifices. Squares have four sides. Two plus two equals four. Those things are logically necessary. But it is not logically necessary that the shedding of blood would lead to the forgiveness of sins. But God In his mercy, in his kindness and compassion, he made a way to cleanse us of our sins. In his mercy, God has made a way for sinners to be forgiven. And in his mercy, God provides atonement. And it's still accomplished through blood and sacrifice. To drive that point home, atonement is still accomplished Through blood and sacrifice. It's just that the sacrifice. Was made by Christ himself. Almost 2,000 years ago. There are no. Goats or bulls. For the covering of sins. Because Christ shed his own blood. To accomplish just that. Now with all this talk about blood. I think it's also worth pointing out. That God is not bloodthirsty. Pointing out that. Or. Some people will criticize, they'll point out that God is he's bloodthirsty, he's violent, he's barbaric. But that's a misunderstanding. It is a mischaracterization. God does not possess a bloodlust that must be quenched. 2 Peter 3.9 says that God does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God does not wish any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Does this sound like someone who relishes violence? No, God does not relish violence, but he's not afraid of it. God does not have a perverse desire to shed blood, but in his goodness, the God of order and beauty must destroy destruction. The God of life must put death to death. And so the wicked who are at war with God must lose rebels against the holy and perfect God must be destroyed. Thus, the blood of sacrifice. The sacrifice is not to appease God's desire for blood as if it's the only way he'll be happy. The blood teaches us how much we are being spared by God's gracious act of forgiveness. We deserve death for our treachery. But instead our rebellion against God is forgiven, and we receive the highest prize, life with him. Bloodshed is not the requirement of a terrifying God of violence, but a merciful God of forgiveness. So as the tax collector stands in the temple... The place where atonement is made and sins are forgiven, the tax collector pleads with God to be pardoned, for his sins to be covered, for his guilt to be taken away. And it is this man who is justified. It is this man, painfully aware of his sinfulness, standing at a distance because he's too afraid and too ashamed to draw near to the holy God. It is this man who is declared righteous. Not because there is anything special about him, but because he appeals to the merciful, forgiving, and gracious character of God. This parable is a rebuke of the self-righteous Pharisee. Self-righteousness anywhere it rears its head. But rather than focusing on self-righteousness, I wanted to focus on the glory of atonement and justification by the blood of Jesus. If we realize what a gift we have in the precious blood of Christ, then the pull towards self-righteousness weakens dramatically. If we allow our thirst to be quenched by the living water, our desire for the spoiled water of self-righteousness will all but go away. If we can see the immeasurable value of Christ's own blood shed for us, everything else will begin to pale in comparison when we come to understand that our standing before God is based entirely upon his grace and mercy, upon the life that Jesus forfeited for us, we will not be tempted to brag about our own goodness. That said, we can't let self-righteousness go completely unaddressed. Uh, thistles uh, thistles have already begun rearing their pokey little heads in the flower beds around our house. There were like three, and then a day later there were hundreds. It's horrible. Um, and if I only ever pull what I can see above the ground, which I have done, you just get frustrated. There are a lot. Um, you don't always get the roots up, right? Those little devils will keep on growing, right? If any, anyone, any, we all know this, right? So you have to get to the bottom of the problem, the root of the problem. And the same goes for any sin. It's no good to just say, don't be self-righteous. You've got to stop that. We have to get to the root, the heart of it, the matter. And self-righteousness does, like any sin, begin in our hearts. In Matthew twelve thirty four, Jesus says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the prayer of the Pharisee in our parable reflects the condition of his heart. He is proud. But it's not enough to just keep your mouth shut. Keeping your mouth shut might keep you from putting your foot in it. But it isn't going to necessarily keep you from being proud. It's pretty easy to be proud in silence. Uh, It's maybe even easier to be proud in silence because you don't have anyone hearing what you're thinking to tell you that you're kind of being a jerk. But the Lord can see a proud heart, even if no one else can. Which is why I've explained the authority of Jesus from Luke. Christ is king. Jesus is judge. It doesn't matter if you think you're righteous. It doesn't matter if you've learned to love yourself or accept yourself. It doesn't matter if everyone in your life thinks you're swell and sings your praises. I don't mean to suggest that those things are unimportant or insignificant or unworthy of our time as Christians. But I'm saying that those things, apart from true righteousness, true justification, are like polishing brass on a sinking ship real righteousness doesn't come from anything you do it comes from outside of you it comes through the pardon of your sins by the blood of Jesus Christ if you trust in Christ you won't need to think you're righteous you won't need to prove you're righteous because he will make you righteous if you trust in Christ You will see the way that the Lord of all creation loves you and accepts you. Trust in Christ. Come to Jesus. Find the church. Find his people called to lift one another up, outdoing one another and showing honor as we bear each other's burdens. Why? Why trust in your own righteousness when a better righteousness is offered to you? Why trust in your own strength when you can be held by God's strength? See, right and wrong, they have to be defined. Righteousness depends upon an authority to define it. Who is that authority? Who can define righteousness? Who can declare a sinner clean? Who can pardon your guilt? Only Jesus. Now that we've got an understanding, I think, of these verses on their own, (laughs) I want to consider them within the scope of the gospel of Luke. Uh, Earlier, we looked at Luke 4, and we saw that there was an emphasis there on the authority and power of Jesus. And when we take Luke 18, this passage 9 through 14, alongside the rest of Luke 18, and, and parts of 17 and parts of 19 that we won't really touch this morning, but when we take all these things together, Faith becomes evident as a theme. Faith. And more specifically, what does faith look like? So starting with our passage, Luke eighteen nine through 14 faith looks like confidence in God. The tax collector is not confident in himself, but he's confident in the merciful forgiveness of God. On the other hand, the Pharisee shows no sense of dependence upon God. He doesn't need to be confident in God. The Pharisee knows God. The Pharisee knows the things that please God. The Pharisee knows what God is like. He is familiar with the Lord, but he does not depend upon him. Moving along in Luke 18 Uh, Verses 15, 16, and 17, we find Jesus' welcoming attitude towards children. When it looks at verses 16 and 17, they say, But Jesus called to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, I, I love kids. I think kids are great. I think they're fun, and just... Lots of laughter and, and great teachers and all kinds of things. But this verse is not about childlike wonder or, or childlike innocence. This verse is about an empty-handed dependence upon God. Children have nothing to offer. They have no claim except to depend upon the goodwill of another. Faith is not just knowledge about God. Faith is not having good doctrine, knowing the right answers. Those things are important, but faith is not merely familiarity with God and his ways. It is dependence on him. The very next passage is Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler in Luke 18, 18 through 30. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus having lived a righteous life. The young man tells Christ all the good he has done, real good, really Actual law keeping, God honoring good things. And Jesus tells him to sell all of his possessions and to follow him. But the man won't do it. He is unwilling, afraid, lacks confidence. He's unwilling to have nothing in order to have Christ. But the tax collector had nothing. He had no appeal but to God's grace, and he was justified. Nothing was all he needed. Infants and children have nothing. But to such as as these belongs the kingdom of God. Nothing was all they needed. But the rich man wouldn't trade everything away for Jesus. The rich young ruler was a good person. He kept the law. He was familiar with God. But just like the Pharisee, the rich young ruler wasn't confident in the Lord. He would not depend upon him. The Pharisee trusted in himself. The rich young ruler trusted in his riches. But what they both so desperately needed was for it all to be stripped away until they had nothing left but to be confident and hope in God. Within those verses there about the rich young ruler, Peter expresses some concern he says jesus we've left everything we have to follow you there it is in luke 18 28 i've got it written here let's let's read it there it is and peter said see how we have left our homes and followed you in effect peter is saying jesus we've done what you asked the rich young ruler to do we've left our lives behind for your sake what will happen to us and Jesus' response, if you're looking, we're not going to read it, but he, he basically says, you will get yours. Don't worry, I'll be sure of it, I will take care of you. Peter and the disciples were depending on Jesus. They had placed their confidence in him. And Jesus Christ promised to care for them and reward them. We're going to keep moving through luke eighteen thirty one through 34 jesus predicts his death for the third time so what's this have to do with faith what's this have to do with our faith well this was to help his disciples help them and assure them to keep their confidence and dependence on christ even as he was being mocked and scorned and ultimately crucified that christ's authority wasn't being challenged in his death that he knew it was coming that he was in control of the situation. And although they did not understand it at the time, Jesus' words were meant to inspire faith in the midst of trial and uncertainty. Now as Luke 18 comes to a close, the story of Jesus healing a blind beggar is recorded in the final verses, 35-43. And the blind man had nothing. He was a beggar. But nothing was all he needed. He cried out to Jesus for help. Actually, if you're looking, he cries out for mercy. And Jesus heals him. Now if we circle all the way back to the beginning of Luke 18 and we look at the parable of the persistent widow, um, that passage ends with a question about faith. Luke 18, verse 8 says, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? In the parable of the persistent widow, faith is demonstrated by the persistent widow petitioning the unjust judge for justice. Her confidence is in the unjust judge to do the right thing. So how much more should our confidence be in the just judge to do the right thing for those he loves? In Luke 18, we are given several portraits of faith. It's a faith that is far more than a knowledge and familiarity With God, faith is an empty handed confidence in and dependence upon the character and work of God. The Pharisee has no need for confidence in God because he is confident in himself. The rich young ruler is afraid to put his confidence in Christ and keeps it in his wealth. But the tax collector, the infants and children, Peter and the disciples, the blind beggar, these people had nothing and nothing was all they needed. And when you need nothing, it's okay to have nothing. And when you need nothing and have nothing, you have no room to boast. You have no grounds for self righteousness. All you have is the hope that God will be merciful as you cast yourself upon Him. And He is. God pardons our sins. By the blood of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. And it's when we recognize our lowliness as sinners that we can call upon the name of Jesus Christ and be lifted high with him in glory and salvation. There is a better righteousness than any you can muster on your own. And whether you run, walk, crawl, or even stumble your way into it, Put your confidence in Christ the Lord. With an empty-handed faith, receive the gift of his perfect peace. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to know the joy of needing nothing. Help us to know the peace and the relief of coming to you empty-handed and completely depending upon your grace and mercy to pardon our sins, to make us your own, to care for us and provide for us. Help us um, to not feel the the shame of self-righteousness, or if we do feel that shame, to quickly set it aside because it is pardoned because we are forgiven, because of the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, Um, help us, help us to rest in that, God. Give us the confidence that nothing is all we need. And and yet, as we look around, and we we really do have so much, and we are um, so blessed in so many ways, God, Help us not to discount all of those things and, and help us to use those things for the good of others, for the good of your church, for our neighbors, um, and for your glory. Not hoarding those things or using them to make ourselves righteous because because we can rest in the righteousness that is given to us, declared of us by Jesus. God, I ask that you would just work on our hearts Again, to to remind us of this wonderful gift of forgiveness that nothing is all we need, and and that because you have forgiven us in such a radical way, our entire lives um, just look different, that we don't have to prove anything, um, be any certain kind of people, that we are are saved and loved and secure in you. And, And knowing that, give us confidence to follow you and trust in you, not just for our salvation but for all of our lives and to see how all of those things are connected as we walk in faith. Um, God, I pray that uh, as we turn to sing and, and as we even prepare to leave, um, that all these things we do would be making us into the people you have called us, that you have made us to be. Um, but Father, thank you most of all for your son, for his sacrifice, and that we are pardoned. Thank you for the gracious gift. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.